ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. Hello, friends. Welcome to Spooktober. Um, yes, for those of you who don't know, that's this is my favorite time of year. I have a little too much fun in October, and that's okay. That is okay. <laughs> we are fans of dressing up and carving pumpkins and all things spooky. So October is a really fun month. Yeah. Speaking of Spooktober, Mom, do you have a favorite Spooktober fall spooky season tradition? You know, I mean, I know it's a dumb thing, but I love because when we carve pumpkins, <laughs> we always carve pumpkins while watching um, Hocus Pocus. Pocus. Huh? Hocus Pocus, right? Hocus Pocus, yeah. I was like <laughs> Anderson sisters. Um, Hocus Pocus. But we always carve pumpkins while watching Hocus Pocus. And I know that's a silly and dumb tradition, but that's what we do. And it brings me joy every time. Um, but other than that, I just like dressing up and doing fun makeup because I'm a fan of some fun makeup. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I think I have a few. One of my favorites, obviously, is like going to a Rocky Horror event. I know oh, yeah. there are some questions about the political correctness of Rocky Horror, and I completely understand and empathize with the struggle um but at the same time historically it was a very safe space for lgbtq plus folks and um it is a space where i feel very empowered and all of that so i still do go to rocky horror events even though i know there is some political correctness issues um yeah but i will say you know most of my my queer friends are fans of a rocky horror event so yeah i was gonna say i have met yeah I've met one person who was anti-Rocky Horror in my entire life and um okay that I was gonna say most (laughs) most queer folks I think appreciate it as like you know it kind of made mainstream although it became a cult classic you know but some things and again we had to have some famous actors and actresses to make it what it became and not all of them are queer. And so I know there are issues around that, but you know, it was a step in normalizing things and opening our eyes to things. And I think it was a good thing. Yes, I agree. Um, But yeah, aside from Rocky Horror, I think one of my favorite just sort of Halloween things to do is just to like dress up I mean the past couple of years I've had a Halloween party I don't know if I'm gonna do a Halloween party because my apartment is quite small um but you know some sort of spooky season celebration of some sort I'm very much excited for so yeah Yeah, I'm hosting a Halloween party for teenagers so you know (laughs) yeah I will do something with my friends as well so yeah I don't want to do anything with teenagers (laughs) that's all on me I got it I got four more years of that and then then I'll have a party that's for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, do you have a special beverage that you are drinking right now or what is going on? Yeah, I'm drinking a Black Butte Porter tonight. 
Um, and it's one of my favorites. Um, I don't know. It's a classic, Alana. I know you like that one, too, even though you're more of an IPA girl, but you're a I fan do. of a black cute porter. I do love a porter and a lager, uh, like a dark lager, you know, so yeah. um, I do love that one. Um, so I'm sticking with a classic tonight because I love that one. Awesome. Yeah, I am once again having that big daddy IPA. So uh, it's yummy. They sell it at the store on the corner. So it's easy. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's, it's becoming one of my staples here. Um, yeah. Any well, what the ale moments for you this week? What the ale moments? Um, let's see. I think <laughs> it's kind of a silly one, but um, the other day I was driving to the house I'm dog sitting at and they live up in the Oakland Hills and they're very windy roads and it's not very fun. Um, but I was driving late at night and um, I turned the corner and just saw two eyes glowing at me and oh. was really freaked out. And then I realized it was a deer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not a demonic deer, a ghosty deer. <laughs> no, it was, it was a living deer. Um, okay. But it was like when I, when I, cause I like turned a corner, you know, so I like saw the eyes first. And then as I yeah. got closer, I realized it was a deer, but from far away, I just yeah. saw the eyes floating in the distance and was like, oh my God. So yeah, my, yeah. What the L moment of last night and or <laughs> this week. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think mine is just, um, you know, I've got a kid that's applying for college right now. And so this week we have some time planned to get some apps submitted and apply for some scholarships. And, you know, it is quite an undertaking <laughs> to do all this. Um, but it's exciting. And, you know, I'm happy for them. And I can't wait to see where they land. But um yeah, I think that's my what the all moment. There's going to be a lot of future planning and applying and all of that this week. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think um, it's that time because a lot of them are due like first week of December normally, right? Like they're due pretty early. So yeah, some of them, I mean, it depends where you're applying, but some of them are like end of November, early December. Um, there are some that are way out until January, but I think all the ones we're applying for are like end of October, end of November. Yeah, well, stuff is end of October, so that's what I was gonna say. The early decision is yeah, great. So we yeah, got to get our hustle on because my kid's been kind of putting it off. <laughs> well, you know, I have applied for college um, of some sort three times now. So if y'all yeah. need help, I guess I can. <laughs> I think we just need to get on it. I think we know what we're doing. We just have not done it. So there, I have to put a little pressure this week and that's okay. It definitely is the like sitting down and doing it is the hard part. Yeah. Like. <laughs> well, and I know that my child's excited about all of this, but you know, it's also scary. It's also like fear of rejection. It also takes time and energy and they have a busy schedule anyways. So yeah, it's just got to have some gentle, loving pressure from their mama. <laughs> um, but I'm sure they will feel better once it's done. And so we just got to push through it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, do we want to get in the first story of our flight? Yeah. So how many stories do we have in this flight? There's five. There are five. Yeah. Five short stories, y'all. And I do want to say there are a lot of murdery kind of stories or very death heavy stories in this flight. Um, okay. And I do want to say most of these 
stories all occurred on Halloween or right around Halloween. That was kind of what I was aiming for. Um, I thought that'd be fun to see like spooky things that actually happened on Halloween. Um, Up until now, most of our things have been unsolved mysteries. There are going to be a few solved things in this one. Oh, okay. Um, But I did it because it fit the theme. (laughs) Okay. One of mine is unsolved. And then the other one was an accident. So um, yeah, so you've got a couple of solved. That's cool. Yeah, I, and it'll, one is, yeah, one is totally solved. And then another one is kind of like, could be solved with a question mark. There's a question mark. Um, All right, well, why don't you kick us off? Yeah. Okay. So this one's actually a bit more recent and you might remember this happening. I feel like I remember this happening. Um, But on Halloween in 2013, there was a man running around New York city um, shooting people wearing the ghost, the ghost face mask from scream. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, And so I think, I know for sure three people died. They said as much or like up to, you know, five or six people also were injured. Um, And this is an unsolved kind of with a question mark one. Um, But this is going to be a little shorter because all I could find were like little news clips that talked about it for like half a page. Um, But the first shooting was around 7.30 p.m., um, 46-year-old Sean Rhodes was found shot multiple times in his vehicle. Um, And he was parked, you know, like a block away from his house. um, And this was in Brooklyn. Uh, And they, like, brought his body to the hospital. um, But he had, you know, been pronounced dead already. There was no chance of saving him. And then the next was an hour later, around 8.30 in East Flatbush, so also Brooklyn, um 19 year old anthony seabury was found shot three times and when they looked at like the cctv footage and stuff it was someone in a ghost face mask so the first one um they didn't have footage of the person in the mask but in the second one they did um and then the last one was kevin thompson who was 37 and he was shot and killed near brownsville around 1130 so also Brooklyn um and what's interesting about this one is that there were a few um other shootings or things that occurred that day so it wasn't just these but these are the ones that are kind of linked to this specific case um And so, like I said, it's unsolved as no arrest was ever made. However, there was a report from the Bronx that there were gunshots happening. Um, And so the NYPD responded and after kind of a shoot off, the gunman was fatally shot. And um, they did not say if the gunman had the ghost face mask or not. I'm assuming he didn't. um, Okay. It wasn't in the article, Um, but after the gunman was shot, no other shootings occurred that night. And again, it's super small, like I said, but like they couldn't connect really whether or not they were the same murderer or they couldn't connect that it was all the ghost face person or they couldn't connect that this gunman was related to the case. 
but it yeah. was just a weird thing that happened and I remembered happening and I was like trying to piece together and I couldn't really find a lot um okay I thought that one was kind of interesting yeah <laughs> um yeah, I mean, if they, if they didn't have the mask or people didn't see the that person in the mask, it totally could be unrelated. I mean, their shootings happen every day, but... Right, and you think about, like, New York City. I mean, how many people, like, how many ambulances are responding in New York at any given day, any given time? And, like, yeah. I mean, even thinking about this, like, this is Halloween. How many people do you see wearing the ghost face mask, you know? <laughs> On Halloween. I know, that's what I was thinking. There's probably, like, a ton, yeah. Yeah, so this one is, like I said, a mini one, but I just thought it was, like, worth mentioning because I actually remembered this one happening, and, um, but yeah, I think that this is totally random ghost face news, but, um, I feel like recently, and I can't remember how long ago, but, like, in the past few months, I think, um, Mm -hmm. didn't somebody who won the lottery, um, you know, who is an anonymous person who won, but agreed to come to do the photo shoot at the store they bought it at? came wearing the ghost face mask to hide their identity yeah they wanted to hide from their family they were like we yeah. don't I don't want people knowing who I am so I'll wear you know, if I won the lottery I would not want anybody to know so that's like brilliant but yeah the ghost face mask I just remember hearing that in the news or something that somebody collected their lottery or you know did the photo shoot for their lottery winning wearing the ghost face mask <laughs> well and it makes sense <laughs> Right. It's so funny, but it also makes me think about like in the first Halloween where like Michael Myers just like goes to the hardware store and grabs the first Halloween mask he sees. And it's the idea of like, it could be anyone under the mask. Like we obviously know it's Michael, but like, yeah, there could have been hundreds of people running around Haddonfield wearing that mask. And so it's like that same logic of, you know, again, we don't know if the murders are related. We don't know whatever. And like, I tried, like, I swear I tried to dig and find more info about all of them, but it was like, so like police reporty, like, you know, so-and-so was shot here. So-and-so was shot here. So-and-so was shot here. And that was it. And I was like, it sounds like you really wanted them to be connected. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) They were all in the same New York times article. I really tried. (laughs) But, Um, and it was all the same night. And it was all the same night. Yeah. And it was all yeah. in Brooklyn, which is why people were like. Did any of the three people know each other? Was there any connection between the people? Not that I could find. And also like they all were very different ages. Like you have 46, 19 and 37. The, yeah. the So the shooting of the 46 year old and the 37 year old. And then the one where the gunman was shot down. All three of those were outside of housing projects. That's like the only mm-hmm. real connection, quote unquote, I could find. But again, okay. like that doesn't mean, you mm-hmm. know, anything. There's many housing projects in New York City. So yeah, um, yeah I don't know. Okay. That's my mini. <laughs> okay. Well, my mini might be a little bit longer, um, but still a short, you know, story. But um, and this one. <laughs> It is unsolved, but one of the theories has to do with a very well-known serial killer. So we'll get to that. Um, But this is the 1981 Halloween night murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman. Okay. Have you heard of them? You know, I think maybe like very early and that's why we drank maybe covered it. But I don't remember a lot of the details. (laughs) Okay. Well, and, you know, I don't have a ton of details um, because it's unsolved and there's, you know, 
not a ton of evidence, but we'll get there. Um, so this happened in Manhattan, um, and it's uh, it was in a neighborhood in Chelsea, so kind of like the west side of Manhattan. Oh, I love Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, um, very artsy. And one of the people murdered is somebody who lived there. He was a freelance photographer. He mostly uh, photographed female models. Um, and this is 39-year-old Ronald Sisman. He was born in Canada. Um, now, people describe him as, you know, I mean, he was a photographer. So, you know, he knew some famous models. He knew some actresses and actors. Um uh, but people mostly, his neighbors in particular, I guess, mostly talked about how um, he may have had some not so great associations. Um, neighbors would describe that he had like a steady flow of people coming like in the middle of the night. Um, the neighbors suspected that he was dealing cocaine out of his apartment. Um, and he had... Um, you know, he was in like a Greystone in the Chelsea area. And again, freelance photographer, probably not a lot of money. And so, you know, people were thinking he could afford this Greystone in Chelsea because he was dealing cocaine. I mean, you can't even, I mean, this is years ago, I'm sure. Yeah. You can't, 1981. Yeah. Nowadays, you can't even live in Manhattan unless you're willing to put like three grand a month down. So like yeah. the idea <laughs> that some a freelance person is making. Yeah. Well, he didn't he's not somebody that like came from money or anything. So yeah. So people suspect that his, it was his cocaine deals that allowed him to live there. Um, now he, um, and this is kind of a sad part, you know, um, he met a woman who is 20 years old. Um, so she's 19 years younger than him. Um, and they met because her cousin was married to, um, his business partner in his photography business. Um, and so that's how the two of them met. And they met just about a little over a month before the shooting. Mm -hmm. um, and so during the month of September, 1981, she visited him multiple times from Massachusetts. Um, and it was like 160 miles. So like she was coming quite a ways to see them. They obviously hit it off and like, she felt very much in love with him. Mm -hmm. um, now she came from a very different background than him. She came from old money girl her family has um what is called a landmark home oh, it's a preschool home in roslyn and her because her house yeah <laughs> uh -huh. and because her house is designated a historical place mm -hmm. like they would give guided tours of their house um you know, and it really was kind of, you know, like a mansion type, you know, I mean, it was like very big. It's, um, you know, anyway, so she came from money, um, you know, and he did not. Um, now she was described as um, like very gentle and sweet. Um, she did a lot of like service work. She helped the elderly and um, people with physical disabilities. Um, yeah. She really enjoyed theater and, um, you know, in service, volunteering, that kind of thing. Um, she was a sophomore um, studying arts in um, Smith College in Massachusetts at the time of her death. And she was described as like an honor student, really well liked by everybody, really clearly on a path, you know, yeah. so doing well. Um, but she got involved with Ron. <laughs> and so um, on this night, Halloween night, 1981, um, 
she came to visit him for the weekend. Nobody really knows much about what their plans were, but it seemed like they were just spending the evening together in the apartment, in his apartment. Um, uh, friends and family did say that Ron um, owned three guns, um, and he said he kept guns because somebody had broken into his apartment before. Um, and, you know, so there is evidence that he had three guns. Now, on this night, um, you know, the the first report was from a neighbor who called the police saying that they heard gunshots coming from Ron's apartment. Okay. And so the neighbor called the police and then, you know, being a good neighbor after calling the police decided to go check it out. So went and found that the door was open, unlocked. So he went in um, and he found that... Uh, the two of them had been been severely beaten okay. and then both of them shot in the back of the head like execution style okay so obviously they didn't do this yeah um and ron was shot four times and liz was shot three times but wow. again like back of the head after being beaten um okay. and it was a 25 caliber pistol and that was one of ron's gun was a 20 you know he had three guns one of them was a 25 caliber pistol and that gun was missing so they think that whoever shot them shot him with his own gun and then took the gun was the gun ever recovered no interesting Um, i was gonna ask but but it was never yeah and the apartment was like ransacked like it looked like somebody went through the apartment looking for something we don't know what they were looking for Mm -hmm. um and so um the other thing that was notable, though, was that both of their IDs, like driver's licenses, were missing. Oh. And so there were some people that were saying, you know, that that might prove that it was like a hit because sometimes you, you know, when I guess when you arrange a hit, I don't know, I don't do this very often. But sometimes when you arrange a hit, you know, the person will bring back the idea of the person they killed to show that they killed the right person. So apparently that's a thing, but we don't know. Um, and um, on the second, you know, so a couple of days after the New York Times posted that the police had no motive and they needed help to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the um, theories, um, I'm going to get to the to the serial killer last because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but. One of the theories, though, is that, you know, because he supposedly dealt cocaine, that this could just be like a drug thing. And maybe he owed somebody money or um, maybe somebody knew that he had cocaine or lots of money in the apartment and just came to rob him. Um, So those are drug addict to just like murder somebody to get their fix if, you know. Yeah. And I mean, they could have ransacked the apartment looking for money or cocaine, you know, so that totally is one of the theories and very possible. now there's also um he had a, a relationship with this guy named um oh gosh what was his name Radden uh Roy Radden okay have you ever heard that name before I don't know why but it sounds familiar but again if like and that's why we drink covered it maybe that's why um okay so he um he was a wealthy film producer at the time okay and he had a mansion in Long Island that was called the Ocean Castle. Okay. 
And he would have a lot of wild parties. A lot of actors and actresses and models would come to these parties. Mm-hmm. Um, there was in 1980. So, um, and this was May of 1980. So it was like year and a half-ish before the murders. Yeah. yeah. There was an actress named Melanie Holler. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's somebody who she had been in Playboy and she was in uh, Welcome Back Carter. Okay. So she was a pretty successful, you know, model actress. Yeah. Um, but she attended a party there mm-hmm. and um, she ended up making a report to the police um, because after attending this party, she was found tranquilized or drugged um, on a train. Mm-hmm. And like completely out of it, drugged on a train. Um, and so when she went to the hospital and the police came, she went through um, a story saying that um, that she um, like they were having orgies at this party and she didn't want to participate. And she was saying that they drugged her and um, and like beat her and raped her okay. at this party. So she said it was um, Roy Raiden and then a bunch of his friends. And she said that this all was being filmed at the time. And there are people apparently that would go to these parties and said that they would film all kinds of things. So they would fill, film sex stuff. They would film drug stuff. But, you know, he was a film producer. Apparently, he really liked to have videos of kind of things that you wouldn't normally want videotaped. Okay. Um, and so... Um, so, you know, but of course the police went to Raiden and, um, and he said, oh no, it was all consensual. And, um, so he was never charged with rape, um, but he ended up being fined a thousand dollars and put on probation for a firearm offense that was like unrelated. So he didn't get any consequences for her report. Um, like any, and there was, huh? oh, I was just going to say, I feel like any Hollywood case I mean, I guess this is technically New York, but any big film producer, whatever person case where like, you know, I just, I'm not saying they don't look into it. I'm just saying it's really, really hard. And that. Well, um, and then the next thing I was going to say, which goes into what you're saying is that an employee that worked for Raiden said, quote, he just owned the South Hampton police. He used them as private security force. And he said also that the cops frequent frequented his parties. Okay. So, you know, there might've even been police there at the time that this happened. We don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, that, so, yeah. Well, and that's interesting too, because if police were invo- involved, they could have just been like, destroy the tapes, you know, and he probably yeah. would have, and then they'd be like, oh, we didn't find any evidence. Um, yeah. And then there was in, in January of 1981, there was one man that was finally charged with her rape, but it wasn't Roy Raiden. Um, oh. And then he only got 30 days in jail plus probation because he pled guilty. So he made a deal, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't know if the deal was made to protect Roy Raiden or, you know, maybe he was like the fall guy or something, but that's not a very severe consequence for drugging somebody, raping them, beating them. Um but it I, let everybody else off off the hook. Everybody else that, on, that was at the party was off the hook then. Yeah, I mean, 30 days. That's, again, yeah. I mean, yes, technically you're going to prison, but that's a slap on the wrist compared to what some people have gotten for far less. And that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. But 
<laughs> yeah. And so the connection between Ron and Roy is just, you know, photographer and film producer. And apparently Ron would go to these parties at Roy's house. Um, and so, um, you know, there's just a connection between them. And so, you know, I'm not saying Roy is involved in Ron's killing, but they just that they knew each other. Yeah. And then in May of 1983, Roy Radin goes missing. And at the time he was living in LA and then his dead body ended up being found in a dry Creek and he had been um, shot in the head and his body was like very deep, you know, decomposed already. Um, And so, and then in this case, there was a Bible found close to his body. So then there was like theories about maybe this was a cult thing or whatever. Um, But it, you know, in this case, it turns out that what they, I think what they, the you know, the consensus about what this was, was that um, apparently there were some issues around the film, The Cotton Club, and okay. Francis Ford Coppola was involved in that project, and apparently there were some disputes about The Cotton Club or the rights or something like that, and so there, the common belief is that it was a murder for hire plot because of that dispute mm. um and so you know i don't know if that's true or not but it's in- interesting that ron ron was killed and then roy was killed you know a year and a half later or whatever um and so we don't know if the two murders are connected but you know it's a thing they hung out whatever so mm. again in this case the theories were it could be drug related it could be robbery related but the most I don't know, well-placed theory that most people believe is that it was the murder for hire due to the Cotton Club. Right. Transport Coppola thing. Oh. Um, okay. Now, all of this ties back together, Ron and Roy, because okay. of the final theory <laughs> that we're going to go through, okay. which has to do with a famous serial killer. And Alana, let's see if you can name that serial killer. Okay. Son of Sam. <laughs> David Berkowitz, my guy. David Berkowitz. What is so that? how does David Berkowitz play into this? <laughs> uh, New York City. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, um, Son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Um, you know, he, if people that don't know, he would go around New York and shoot people, just random shoot people um I have opinions about this case that I would like to share I was gonna say I'm sure you were gonna have opinions so what would you like to share before I go forward uh one thing is I definitely want to say Berkowitz I I I think he did some things but I don't think he was alone and I think that is a conspiracy we should follow sometime and maybe do a, a spinoff okay. on that um well, little Miss Girly Swirl, I was going to ask about that <laughs> because, you know, I know we are only planning to do unsolved, unsolved cases, but there is a lot of conspiracy about whether or not he was alone and that plays into this story, too. Yeah. So yeah. we might have to discuss whether we should, you know, do this case because, you know, there may be some conspiracy theories about whether he was alone or not. I would like to do this case personally. Okay. I think it's a very cool case. So Okay. Well, I'll let you go for that at some point, but I will tell you how it plays into Ron Sisman right. um, 
and uh, Elizabeth Plattsman's case. Okay. okay. So Son of Sam, um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, the, you know, there were stories that he claimed his neighbor's dog was a demon and told him to shoot people. The owner of the dog's name was Sam. Um, so the demon dog would be the son of Sam, <laughs> you know, whatever. And um, shoot the dog? Isn't that a thing? Huh? Oh, I don't know about that. Dog? You can cover that in your case. But um, anyways, David Berkowitz was arrested in 1977. Um, at some point, I guess he admitted that the dog story was made up. I think he was trying to get off on insanity or something by saying he believed a dog was compelling him to do these murders. Um, but uh, the interesting tie to Ron and um, Elizabeth's case is that David Berkowitz, according to uh, one of his cellmates at, or um, uh, just somebody else that was in jail with him. I don't know if it was a cellmate, but somebody else that was in Rikers at the time. Um, he His name was Vinny. And he said that Berkowitz told him that the murder was going to happen a couple weeks before it did. And, you know, he didn't tell anybody at the time because he just thought it was, you know, bullshit. He thought that Berkowitz was just talking out of his ass or whatever. But yeah. once he saw in the paper that those murders took place, then he went, you know, and told somebody. Mm -hmm. um, now, what Vinny was told was that the son of Sam cult members were responsible for this murder. And this is where the whole, did David Berkowitz do these killings on his own? Because there are theories that there was, um, you know, son of Sam cult members that, you know, he didn't kill all these people, that other people were responsible too. And, um, yeah, that it was just, you know, a cult thing that they were all in this together. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's this idea that, that the, um, that the son of Sam cult members killed them. Now, why would the son of Sam cult members want to kill Ron? Well, this is something that I don't know if it's true or not, but apparently the rumor is that, um, Ron and Roy, so R&R, &R, okay. Ron and Roy um, apparently made a snuff film of David Berkowitz's last murder. And the, the theory is that they filmed him committing that murder. Oh. And, um, you know, and again, Roy had been well known to like, he liked to film things that you typically wouldn't want filmed. Right. And so the theory was that, you know, Roy at least was a part of this cult and then somehow Ron got involved to help with like filming and photography and that the two of them filmed this final murder. And so if you believe this theory, you know, the cult killed them, ransacked the apartment looking for that film. Okay. You know, now, I... I feel like it's a little bit of a stretch. I will let you finish. But yeah. well, when I was going to say, this seems like a little bit of a stretch to me because like, I don't even know who's like admitting that they knew about this film because you would think like only Roy and Ron would know about it. Um, or, you know, if there were other people that were involved in these parties that enjoy filming weird stuff, maybe they would have known about it too. But nobody else has said this. I, you know, I couldn't find any evidence of anybody else saying it. However, um, one of the articles that I read did say that the Son of Sam Netflix documentary mentions RR did a snuff film. 
And I don't, you know, I haven't watched that in a while. And I was going to try to watch it before presenting this, but I just didn't have time. Um, so, you know, I don't know if, but, you know, Netflix documentaries tend to put stuff, things, you know, the, the things that they put out there tend to be researched. Um, I will so, and again, I vaguely remember this when you mentioned it, I was like, RR, I remember that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, again, RR could be Ron and Roy, or it could just be Roy Raiden. You know, so I don't know if it was just Roy on his own or Ron. So, you know, Ron's murder may have nothing to do with this. Right. Um, but that's one of the theories. Now, the really sad part is Liz seems to be completely innocent in this. She yeah. met him like a month before, 19 years younger than him. Wrong right. place, wrong time, beaten and murdered for no reason. She just fell in love with the wrong man. Right. Um but, you know, so that part is really sad to me because she seemed like she was on a good path and a student and well liked and, you know, doing good work and all the things. And it's really sad that she got caught up in this. Um, but anyways, Alana, so that last theory is pretty far fetched, but that's how Roy and Ron tie together with David Berkowitz. So what do you believe? Do you think it was drug stuff? Do you think it was just robbery? Do you think it was cult killing? I'm leaning towards drug stuff and robbery. Um, yeah. I also haven't watched the Son of Sam documentary in a while. I mean, I, I, you know me, I fall asleep to murder docs all the time. So I yeah. fall asleep to it, but I don't think I've ever gotten to that part because normally I'm out. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I've watched the whole thing, but I just don't remember it. Um, and I yeah. just didn't have time to rewatch it. So, well, and I think the interesting thing with David Berkowitz, you know, say what you will about the case and the conspiracy or whatever, but he is like a born again Christian. The man has been like model prisoner and Jesus is great and all the things in the past like 20 years. So I do think we should cover Berkowitz and whether or not he was involved in a cult or not, because I do think it's really a fascinating story. And a lot of the people that were involved in the quote unquote cult also died pretty soon after. Oh, really? Um, Okay, well, I don't know much about that, so maybe you should cover it. Yeah, yeah. I don't care if he found Jesus. I still am glad he's rotten in jail. Yes, no, he should be in jail. I am shocked he did (laughs) not get an electric chair. I am shocked. Yeah. But, yeah, no. All right. So, but I agree with you. I mean, I think the Berkowitz thing seems kind of whatever, but, um, I mean, it could be. You never know. I mean, they all may have known each other, but, yeah, the... To me, the more likely is that it was robbery and drugs, you know, maybe both, you know, wanting to steal cocaine and money. Um, yeah. You know, that's, I kind of believe that one seems just more realistic given that that's what he was really into, but you never know. Yeah, never you himself. never know. I also feel like it's New York and like yeah. we said, the last one, New York has a lot of murders and a lot of things yeah. and a lot of crazy. So <laughs> that's also where it's hard. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that's my story. So what do you got next for us? Well, mom, when you went trick-or-treating or when I go trick-or-treating when I was a kid, what was like the first thing you did when you got home? <laughs> we dumped the candy out on the living room floor and went through it. Ding, ding, ding. So I am going to cover the case that kind of led us to checking our candy. Um, okay. And this is a solved case. I gave the disclaimer at the beginning. I just felt like 
you know, it's one of those. It's very Halloween related. So it's a yeah. theme for the month. And I felt very like when I was a kid, I was like, mom, this is so dumb. No one's going to yeah. do anything to our candy. Like, why are we dumping it out on the living room? And like, yeah. Amir is going to take my Almond Joys or whatever. Yes, I like Almond Joys. Don't hate me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. Well, so we're going to begin in Pasadena, Texas in 1974 I did not know there was a Pasadena Texas girl I thought I was writing about California I was gonna say they're trying to be like LA (laughs) it was like I really thought it was California and then at one point they were like oh yeah and then they went back to their house in Deer Park Texas and I'm like how did they get from Pasadena to Texas (laughs) (laughs) yeah I didn't know there was a Pasadena Texas that's funny so I'm dumb but anyway um but the O'Brien family went trick-or-treating with their neighbors, the Bates family. And um, the system was basically that um, Richard O'Brien, who was the dad, would go up to the houses with the kids. And then Mr. Bates, and I did not write down his first name, so I feel bad about that. But Bates- That's okay. We'll just call him Norman. (laughs) Norman. Norman Bates. Beautiful. Um, But he would stand on the sidewalk- and just like wait for them to come back basically so like an adult would go with them to get the candy and um at one house there was a wall where like he couldn't really see the door um Mm -hmm. and the kids like knocked on the door and there was no answer so they gave up but then a minute later Richard O'Brien emerged and had five pixie sticks and he was like hey like they opened the door like right after you guys turned around and they gave me these pixie sticks and da 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 da. And okay. um I guess basically after this house it started to rain so they all decided to go home. So cut to about an hour later, uh Richard O'Brien is making a call to 911 that his son Timothy ate poisoned candy. Oh wow. And um the ambulance came and took him to the hospital but he did die later that night. Um, and he oh was eight years old. So, oh, baby, poor baby. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. And when they tested the pixie stick container, it was found to have cyanide in it. Oh, wow. So, cyanide, they just went straight for the stuff. So, I think it was laced with cyanide. Like, they probably poured some of the sugar out and put the cyanide in and then, like, shook it, is my guess. Yeah. Um, and so the officers, luckily, like I said, there were five pixie sticks and the officers were able to get all the other pixie sticks before any of the kids ate it. So oh my gosh. very sad Timothy didn't make it, but I'm really glad their kids ate the candy. Yeah. Um, and within days, actually, of Timothy passing away, they arrested his father in connection oh. with her. So, okay, what's the story here? Oh, girl. <laughs> so, apparently, Richard O'Brien was known for doing false insurance claims. And oh. I guess he had done this before. And like with other family members or just I I don't know if it was like maybe he got like auto insurance and then like crashed a car and was like give me money or like that type of thing but it was like he had done some sort of insurance claim before um and earlier that year he had taken out twenty thousand dollar insurance claims on both of his kids um if both kids passed 
he would get 40,000 if one kid passed away he'd still get 20,000 which is still a lot of money um luckily five-year-old daughter Elizabeth didn't have any of the candy like I said Timothy was the only one that had the candy um and O'Brien was reportedly really deep in debt at the time and so he had uh basically boasted to his co-workers that his financial health would soon recover which like why if you're going wow. to someone don't like yeah you know like it's not that hard not to put evidence out there yeah. um but the kind of like damning piece of evidence was that a witness claimed they saw him come into a host a wholesale chemical store inquiring about cyanide and then earlier at some point he also took a class at a local community college where he was asking how much poison it would take to kill certain animals but he was asking oh my gosh <laughs> okay like how much would kill a dog okay but like how much would kill like a deer okay but like how much would kill a horse like he was trying to like get like wow did that teacher report that I would have reported that I'd be like this guy's something's wrong yeah I don't know and so as far as I know no one reported that which like because I mean I have morbid curiosity so sometimes I'll like be listening to a podcast and then go down a rabbit hole of something but like yeah but wanting like significant details seems yeah what are you trying to plan dude yeah that is very suspicious I agree with that um and then the last kind of piece of evidence they found was that they had found the plastic from a pix from the pixie sticks in his house because basically what I think he did was he cut them open and then he laced them with the cyanide and then he stapled them closed um and actually this is something interesting too because um like I said, they were able to confiscate all the candy, but there was one kid found like holding it while he was asleep, like in his oh room. My gosh. And so they- he did just give it to random kids too, not just his own kid. So remember he they were going trick-or-treating with another yeah. family. So he came back with enough pixie sticks for all the kids. Okay, so all the kids that he was with. Yeah. Cause oh, I wow. think in his mind it was like, okay, like I'm going trick-or-treating with five kids, but I want my two kids to die. So if I bring five pixie sticks and give them, there's more of a chance that like the kids will eat the pixie sticks, basically. Hmm. Were the were the was there poison in the other kids' pixie sticks too? Yeah, because he I mean he would want to make it look like it wasn't just his kids, but that's yeah. really sad too. Yeah, the idea was to throw off suspicion with that. Wow. Um, and so um yeah so like I said one they were able to confiscate all of it but what one of the Bates kids was found holding the pixie stick while he was asleep because he couldn't open the staple because he was too little to open the staple but like thank god (laughs) um, I don't know you know we would go through your candy and I think if any of the candy was stapled shut I would not let you have that candy yeah no me either I I think (laughs) I would know something's wrong with that candy I would hope it's clearly tampered with if it has been stapled yeah, but you know, this is the seventies and okay. <laughs> I still would not <laughs> I'd be like, uh something happened to this if it's been stapled. Like that's not how it comes at the store. You're right, you're right. I'm but this was before people checked candy, Mom. Oh, okay. I... Um even as a kid, I was a very smart kid and I would not have eaten candy that had a staple on it. 
I'm just going to say I was the smartest kid ever. I've never made a mistake. So yeah, that's the thing. I'm really happy that you were a <laughs> child. <laughs> yes. I'll admit my dumb five-year-old brain probably would have tried to open Yeah, it. you probably would have. But, you know, I was just a genius child that never made mistakes. So, you know. Goodness. But wow. But yeah, the parent. But I guess if no parents were checking candy, yes, kids will eat whatever you give them and not yeah. question it. Yeah, exactly. And so... Thankfully, like I said, they arrested him within a couple of days. So nothing happened to Elizabeth ever. Um, but he was found guilty and sentenced to death, which is where he got the nickname, the candy man. So I don't know if you've ever heard of oh. Um, But yeah. And apparently- I didn't know there was actually somebody convicted who was called the candy man. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously very, very, very different because the Candyman movies feature a black human and this man was white and there are very different origin stories to the Candyman in those movies versus this guy but he got but this guy is just an asshole yes he's an asshole I agree yeah the Candyman <laughs> movies have very different plots than this yeah yeah I agree and um apparently in his like sentencing the jury only deliberated for an hour um they were like yep he did it and I think like they said oh it took a little longer but they did end up giving him the death sentence Mm -hmm. Um, and he was executed in 1984 by lethal injection Um, Mm -hmm. and apparently before he died I didn't write down the quote but he did basically do the whole I'm sorry for everything I've done and I hope everyone that I've wronged can forgive me and da 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 but I'm like you fucking killed your kid like there's a special yeah, I was gonna say, you know if somebody kills any child but particularly their own like who does that you know um but killing any child yeah I hope you get the death penalty yeah me too so he was executed in the 84 and um like we kind of mentioned obviously um the the year following the murder um the Pasadena like police department or something did a whole like round of PSAs warning people to check their candy and my assumption is, is obviously other people check their candy after that because it reached us in California and we checked all of our candy growing up. But um, yeah, I think. Now, you know, though, my, so I don't know if my mom knew that story because my mom would check our candy. And, um, but the thing when I was a kid was the whole razor blade thing. Like all the parents were afraid that there were going to be razor blades in your candy. Yeah, you know, I didn't actually look that up when I was reading this. I did think about it. I was like, I, I always yeah. thought it was razor blades. Um, yeah, because I mean, seriously, like my mom would say, we have to check your candy for razor blades. Like, so I don't know where that came from, but that was, you know, back in the eighties, you know, that everybody was checking candy for razor blades. Yeah, and I don't know that specific piece, so maybe that's another story we could cover. Maybe there's a bigger case or something there, but. I think it might just be a rumor. I don't know. But yeah, I remember that being a thing when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just figured since it is spooky season and all of us have probably had to dump our buckets on the floor and go through yep. it was it would be an interesting You know what? Season. My kids are teenagers now. And if they go out trick-or-treating, which they may not because they're teenagers, but if they do, I'm still gonna check their candy. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> old habits die hard, Alana. No, I mean, it is very smart to check your candy, I think. Yeah, and we send our kids out to beg for free candy. We should probably look at the candy before we feed it to them. Yeah, I will say I broke the rule a little bit. I would eat candy on the walk sometimes when y'all weren't looking. 
Sorry, but I'm here. (laughs) I have no doubt. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's really right. But do you? I've never heard that, but that's so sad. So so sad. Yeah, but all right. Well, my next one is not anything murdery, um, but it is an event that happened on Halloween night. and this is the Indiana Coliseum explosion of 1963. Oh my goodness. Have you ever heard of this? Um no, I don't really think I don't I didn't know that there was a Coliseum explosion. That sounds like quite the thing. <laughs> yeah, so um so this Coliseum was built in 1938. Mm-hmm. And um, apparently it was part of, um, I guess, uh, President uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt had like a works progress administration. Okay. Um, and so this this was built because of that program. And so the WPA was designed to like help create jobs and infrastructure and then like improve the economy mm-hmm. in the wake of the Great Depression. So, okay. you know, they were, you know doing like public works and that kind of thing. So um, the building of the Coliseum ended up creating countless jobs in Indiana, um, you know, because not only like the building of the Coliseum and the, you know, supplies and, you know, steel and, you know, all the things. um, But once it was built, you know, they would hold ice hockey games and concerts and public speeches and all kinds of events. So, you know, it, um, it was a Coliseum that ended up bringing in money every year, every month, you know, for, based on these events. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of the times the, um, you know, there would just be like extravagant shows. So one of the shows that they brought to the Coliseum, um, it was like a, an ice capade type show. Oh. Um, and it was holiday themed. Um, it, it was called Holiday on Ice. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of like going through all the holidays. And so there was a live orchestra and very dramatic, beautiful costumes. And then obviously talented skaters, dancers, performers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, they were like in the finale of the show. So, you know, this was like the last three minutes before the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there was this huge explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say huge explosion, I mean, it like blew out this whole side of the um, Coliseum and, um, you know, it was, uh, I'll, I'll just say, you know, at the end of it, they didn't know initially, you know, but at the end of it, the explosion killed 74 people and it near it injured nearly 400. So it was a big, massive explosion. Okay. Um, and so it was just after 11 p.m. and nobody had realized that there was or actually one person did, but he didn't have time to whatever. But there had been a propane um, gas tank that was leaking oh my um, and it was just below a concessions area. And so it was slowly filling this room where like a door was closed. It was filling the room. And um, and apparently, um, you know, the, like the concessions manager at some point he went in the room for something and he realized like you could tell it was like a haze of gas filled the room. And so he went out and tried to like warn the people that working the concessions to get out. Um, But apparently there was like a spark from a popcorn machine and that's what set off the explosion. 
Okay. So, you know, it took out, um, like they said that the, the flames were like 40 feet in the air. Um, it, it catapulted all the people and all the chairs that were in that section. Just, you know, and, and from the pictures you could see, it looks like it was like wooden chairs. So it's not like a Coliseum you picture now where it's like, you know, metal chairs that are all hooked together, you know, it's like wooden chairs. Um, but it, but it just like blew up this whole section. And one person described it as like, there was concrete chunks um, that were like the size of pianos. Oh so all of this stuff just got thrown. And so obviously people that, you know, they were impacted, even if they weren't sitting in that section, they were impacted by the debris of right. these big concrete chairs, people, you know, being thrown. Um, and so, um, so there was like, once the explosion happened, there was an off duty firefighter that happened to be in the audience. Um, and so he immediately called the um, Indianapolis Fire Department and um, and told them the situation. And because, you know, he's a firefighter and he's trained, he was able to tell that it seemed like a gas explosion. Mm -hmm. um, so he was able to give them that information. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously they uh, the um, the fire department also called the police department. Um, and so, you know, pretty shortly people started arriving. And, you know, this happened, what did I say, 1106? By 1111, um, you know, police cars were already starting to show up and the fire trucks were shortly behind. Um, so people were on the scene pretty quickly. I mean, it was like a big explosion and, in, in, you know, what at the time was kind of a small area. Um, and so the initial police radioed in that they thought there was maybe 10 to 15 people that had died. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was because they hadn't quite gotten into it yet, you know. Uh, um, but, you know, I just want to say, like, the community really came together because um, very shortly after all this happened, the Salvation Army and the American Red Cross um, sent personnel to assist at the Coliseum. They, um, you know, set up stations where they could help wounded, you know, people that were able to get out but that were wounded. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was a lot of help and then because of these large concrete pieces that were blown um the fire department was really having a hard time like finding people and like getting in there and doing all the things that they needed to do so um they ended up mobilizing um other people who like heavy equipment uh workers and so mm -hmm. like the um uh there was a place called speedway indiana mm -hmm. and they brought in like mobile cranes and things like that to help clear some of the debris to look for survivors and um and and then the really one of the really sad things was because there were so many people that were already dead you know by the time they got in there they they probably died on impact you know um they ended up creating like on the ice mm -hmm. it was like a makeshift morgue they were lying bodies down on the ice and covering them with blankets while they continued to search for injured people that they could save um and then they there was a fairgrounds outside and then they made a makeshift triage center out there where they would remove people um and there were uh like civil defense officials um that were helping you know take some of these people to local military bases and they had u.s army ambulances coming to help because you know they didn't have enough ambulances in just the city um 
So, you know, my point is just a lot of people came together, you know, to try to help with the rescue efforts. Um, and so, um, so, you know, but what they found, like I said earlier, you know, it was this uh, petroleum gas leak and, and then it was this tank. And the sad thing was that, um, you know, this tank was like really not in good condition and it was rusted. It didn't have a proper cap on it. Oh my God. Um, so, you know, it was really like a negligent thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, what they found out was like, um, you know, there should have been inspections, you know, there, there were supposed to be inspections before any major events. Um, and then there were supposed to be inspections about certain things that they had in the arena, but this, uh, petroleum gas tank should not have been in the arena at all, but it turns out that, um, you know, the, all of the, uh, in- inspections that had were supposed to have been done hadn't been done. So they were supposed to be done at least monthly, but definitely before any big event. And the inspections hadn't been done in over a year. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, they, they ended up trying to indict the fire marshal, the Indianapolis fire chief, the general manager and the concessions manager at the Coliseum, um, as well as officers of the company that supplied the gas tanks. Um, because again, all of them were thought to be negligent because they weren't doing the inspections or, you know, what they were supposed to be doing. Um, but there was only one con- uh, conviction and that was the president of the gas supplier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the verdict was later overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, even though it was overturned, um, they ended up having to pay $4.6 in settlements to victims and survivors. Wow. Um, so, you know, now, um, as of this article, well, I guess as of 1991, the Coliseum acquired new sponsors sponsorship and was renamed Pepsi Coliseum. I don't know if it's still that now. Oh, no, it says it was not renewed in 2012. Um, okay. So now it's Indiana Farmers Coliseum. Okay. Um, and it underwent a renovation that was $63 million. And that was completed in 2014. Um, and then I will say, so this happened on a Halloween, 1963 and by September, 1964. So just under a year later, the Beatles played. So they did the renovation and the Beatles were the opening act when they reopened. Wow. Month after the Beatles played there, holiday on ice came back and it sold out crowd of 5,000 at the time. Um, so the holiday on ice came back and performed again, and this time without incident. Well, I'm glad that they were able to rebuild and people were willing to go, but that's quite the tragedy. Yeah. I can't believe. It was very sad. So nothing spooky, no murders, but, you yeah. know, a tragedy that occurred on Halloween night, 1963. Wow. That's so sad. <laughs> I know. And it was really sad because the way they described it, you know, they were in their their finale. Mm-hmm. So they were like skating in like a pinwheel formation. Oh, wow. And everybody was wowed by it. You know, everybody thought it was really beautiful. And then this explosion. So, yeah, it was nice that the, you know, the um, holiday on ice came back, though. I think if I was a part of that, I would not want to come back. But it's nice that they did like on the anniversary of the explosion. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah. 
So anyways, that's my story, Alana. <laughs> well, we have one more. Okay. Um, and I felt like our other stories were a little heavy. So I kind of okay. did one that's a little silly. <laughs> okay. Um, And it's technically not on Halloween night. It's on the 30th. But okay. um, it is connected to Halloween. It was part of a special Halloween thing. Okay. But, in 1938, because of FDR's New Deal, um, I guess radio broadcast systems were doing like retellings of novels and things over the air. Mm -hmm. So the Mercury Theater of Air um, broadcasted a special version of War The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Oh. And um, the director or... Or, no, sorry, my apologies. Someone on the writing team thought that the original story was a bit outdated and boring, and he wanted to update it and make it more interesting. <laughs> and so he ended up moving the Martian invasion from England to New Jersey. Oh, and okay. What they did was they basically made it so that there were going to be no commercials during the broadcast. So it seemed more off. Oh, okay. And okay, I think I know where this is going. I think I've heard of this. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the broadcast basically started out with like dance music and they were like talking about like how it just was like this beautiful dance music and then there would be an interruption with reports of a meteorite that was seen in New Jersey and okay. then it would be like the meteorite has crash landed and they get closer and they're like oh my gosh it was a Martian rocket and then all of a sudden the Martians are coming out and mowing down villagers with heat rays that are oh like burning bodies and things and okay. um they didn't really describe the aliens like they said it was like very vague how the aliens were described okay. but that was like enough to scare people okay. and as time went on you know the broadcast is going more and more like oh like there are other crafts coming into the atmosphere and there's more martians landing and we're spraying poison gas and destroying the power lines and the railroads and the bridges and like they're all coming to new york city so okay. Um, then what they did was they had an, a, an anonymous politician. I tried to dig and find out who it was, but they would not say, but I guess okay. some politician could do a really great FDR impersonation. And so then they had this guy impersonating FDR coming on. That was like, um, you know, Hey, y'all, this is a really big deal. We need to defeat this adversary. We need to band together. We got to do these things. And again, it's still part of the story. Like it's not real. Yeah. And then Orson Welles played a Princeton professor who pronounced that the death rays were being like projected by unearthly materials. So he was like, well, I don't even know how to fight this. Like these death rays are whatever. And then what really scared people was there was a news reporter um, within the story that was describing these monstrous machi machines that were crossing the Hudson and that there was mm. a poisonous smoke that started to drift across the city. Um, and then while the reporter's reporting, 
they fall victim to the gas. And so then you hear the broadcaster or someone on the radio being uh, saying 2X2L calling CQ. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Is there anyone? (laughs) And basically how the story ended was with all of the Martians falling victim to earthly bacteria because they, their bodies or whatever couldn't live on earth. Okay. Um, which is how it ended in the book. And at the end, only at the end, did Orson Welles come on the air and announce that this was all a fantasy for Halloween. They just wanted to <laughs> tell a scary story. <laughs> um, yeah. But what do you think was going on while all of this was happening? <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of people believed it, right? Like a lot of people thought this was like a real newscast and like. Yeah. I mean, The way that people reported hearing this story was that they were like, I was listening to music and then I was hearing about a Martian invasion. Like, yeah, yeah. So people really believed that it was news. Yeah. And so and I mean, they're hearing these reports of like American soldiers attacking Martians as they're heading to New York City and this poisonous gas spreading across the city. So like people were talking about like how like their parents or their neighbors were like running to their houses in hysterics or people were like that's crazy (laughs) running out of their houses with like makeshift gas masks they made out of like I don't even know but like (laughs) I mean people like really believe this was true Um, kind of sadly too there were a few women who went into like early labor because oh my gosh So, well, you know, maybe that was a blessing, though, you know, because late labor, you know, I mean, it's very, you're very uncomfortable. You know, if you could go a week or two early, it's probably better for everybody. They were described <laughs> as premature, so I don't. Oh, know. no, then that's not good. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, you know, it's funny because I think like if something like that happened now, mm-hmm. people would be looting. Like people oh, would yeah. be yeah. It wouldn't even be a, I'm afraid for my life and I'm going to make a makeshift gas mask. People would be looting and trying to get a big flat screen TV. Oh, hundred percent. I think this would have turned into the purge, honestly. Yeah, it would. Or yeah, um, people getting revenge on people they don't like. You know, right. There's not going to be consequences. And again, like there were reports of people like running out of the shower, like they were dripping wet in a towel, <laughs> like running out with like something to breathe into, like. And um, there was one where they said, like, a lot of people were rushing to church, which, like, what is church going to do? I mean, I don't know if the Lord could save you from a Martian invasion, but I guess. like <laughs> <laughs> That's um, fun. And so, you know, the funny thing is, is that obviously CBS was flooded with a ton of phone calls. And yeah. um, after the fact, you know, they were very heavily criticized for causing a hysteria um, in in the U.S. Um, yeah. And of course, like, if you look at, like, I looked at a couple, like, I don't know, articles from the 30s when this happened, and they were, like, people are, like, running in the streets and, like, causing a mass hysteria, and people are fleeing their homes, and da, da, da. Yeah. it wasn't that bad, um, but it definitely was quite a panic, and um, yeah. so the media, like, blew it way out of proportions, too. Yeah, it they, really- they made it bigger than it needed to be, yeah. Yeah, but something kind of funny that came out of it was that Orson Welles became famous because of it. Oh, really? That's what made him famous? He was only 23 at the time of the broadcast, and he, like, oh, became okay. famous because of it, because of his ah. involvement. 
So, um, well, I yeah. guess it worked then, you know, I got him famous. So his right. plot yeah but I mean that's really it I just thought it was such a silly story that like because yeah. again like I could imagine it like you know we get those emergency alerts now on our phones, so it's very different but if like I got an emergency alert and I didn't realize it was a test or something I'd freak out like yeah yeah I imagine hearing something especially back in the day when like you're used to getting like you know you have your fireside chats with FDR and you're used to like you know, having that. Well, I mean, on the radio, that's how you got a lot of your news anyway. So yeah, that makes sense that you would think it was real. Yeah. And the fact, I mean, they didn't say that they announced that it was just like a reading of War on the Worlds. Like maybe, maybe there had been some announcement somewhere, but it didn't say. So if, I mean, I think it's on them a little bit, like being like, hey, this is like a fictionalized retelling of War of the Worlds would have just ended. Yeah. There would have been no hysteria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's funny <laughs> yeah I thought it was funny yeah. I felt like it was a kind of light-hearted way to end it because you know yeah. Um, no yeah I, I can understand why people at that time would have been freaked out by that because that is how you got your news a lot of the time was the radio so yeah and then you have a guy that sounds like FDR like yeah <laughs> saying, like we yeah. together like that would scare the crap out of me <laughs> yeah oh my gosh yeah, that's funny, but I could see why people would believe it at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like with all the if you didn't know War of the Worlds, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, the book came out in like the eighteen sixties or something. I mean, it's a very old book. So even thinking of it like that, like how did they get out there? Um. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's our flight. <laughs> All right. And I don't know, but we may want to put together a spooky story flight if we get some spooky story submissions. So yeah, yeah. get some Halloween things going. I know I've got a haunted thing for my next one. And um, yeah, <laughs> you got what? I have a plan. Don't worry. You have a plan for a spooky thing? I do. All right. Um, but yeah, you know, like we said, just, you know, like, subscribe, rate us five stars, send us email or DM us on Instagram. If you have a topic suggestion or your own spooky story, we love to hear it. Um, and we will have our keg coming out in a couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. But other than that, y'all, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> yes, it will. It will be great. <laughs> but um anyway y'all we want you to enjoy your spooktober eat all the yummy treats enjoy the you know chai lattes and the whatever that come out um yeah. the bells, if that's your thing I, that's not my thing but I love I respect people who like it <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah um I think that's it <laughs> all right Alana well I appreciate you and I appreciate you <laughs> all right and thanks you guys for listening we'll see you next time Bye, friends.